Welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. We're dispensing stories of success from across the continuum of care. I'm your host, Hillary Blackburn. Thanks for joining us to learn from leaders throughout the pharmacy industry. Hey, listeners, get up to speed on all things sleep with expert Dr. David Neubauer. And if you're interested in hearing more about what I'm doing with maternal health, check out www.rxformom.com and reach out if you are a pediatric pharmacist or pharmacist interested in maternal health. I'm looking for others who are also passionate about that and want to help with some content. Or maybe you're also a mom and have questions just like I did. So reach out. Let me know what you think about this project. All right, so today we have a special guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Our guest, Dr. David Neubauer, is Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and Senior Faculty of the Johns Hopkins Sleep Disorder Center. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and Life Fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, as well as a member of the Sleep Research Society, European Sleep Research Society, and the World Sleep Society, where he serves on the International Scientific Committee. He has served on the Board of Directors and Executive Committee of the National Sleep Foundation. He is the author of Understanding Sleeplessness, Perspectives on Insomnia, which was published by the Johns Hopkins University Press, as well as numerous articles and book chapters on sleep-related topics. He is co-author of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine Clinical Practice Guideline for the Pharmacologic Treatment of Chronic Insomnia in Adults in the current Walters Kluwer up-to-date section on pharmacotherapy for insomnia in adults. He routinely champions the importance of healthy sleep as a key component in the pursuit of wellness. Dr. Neubauer, welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Thanks so much, Hillary. You you can guess uh, from that background that I'm uh, always happy to talk about sleep-related issues. Mm -hmm. Well, um, and yes, I I can't wait to dive in more um, about that. But first, now that our listeners have heard a little bit about your background, maybe you can fill in any gaps from that intro or share a bit more about your personal life. Sure. Well, um, you know, when I was a teenager, I was very interested in the brain and psychology. And even way back then, um, I would look at articles about sleep research. And even back when Life Magazine was looking at uh, those sorts of topics, I would cut out pictures of people uh, in sleep laboratories and researchers at that time. And and my interest in sleep after that was kind of latent for several years uh, when I was in college. But finally, um, after medical school and when I was doing my psychiatry residency, I realized that there was a very important association between sleep and psychiatric illness, and that, you know, re-sparked that interest, which branched out more broadly into uh, an interest in other sleep disorders and the whole science of sleep, and you know, ultimately into sleep and wellness and the things that uh, everybody can do to enhance their lives by, you know, maximizing their their sleep quality. 
Yeah. Wow. Well, certainly an important topic, uh, and you know, very key component of wellness. Uh, you know, everybody, if you're going on a lack of sleep, uh, that it it can definitely show some wear and tear. So maybe we can first hit on the topic of insomnia, what that is, how is it diagnosed, and how frequently does it occur? Sure. Well, from a clinical point of view, insomnia is the most common sleep disorder seen in the general population. And most broadly, insomnia is difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep in association with some sort of daytime consequences. And and while people can talk about having a bad night and say that they have insomnia from time to time, when we think about it from a clinical point of view, from a disease perspective, there are criteria in the DSM-5 and in the International Classification of Sleep Disorders, now in its third edition, that specify the need for people to experience that difficulty with getting asleep or staying asleep and having daytime consequences, such as fatigue or moodiness, um, sometimes sleepiness, but not necessarily uh, a lot of worry about sleep during the daytime can be part of that as well. And this needs to go on for at least three months in the context of somebody actually having you know, an adequate opportunity for sleep. And so insomnia is not going to bed too late and having to get up too early and not having enough sleep for that reason. So you have to have a reasonable opportunity for it. Um, and it shouldn't be due to some other obvious problem, uh, due to you know some other um, disorder that is, might be causing it, or you know, or perhaps um, some medication effect from something else uh, that, that the person you know might be taking. So all of that together, you know, um, leads to that diagnosis of insomnia. And for many people, it tends to be a chronic problem that may come and go. There may be predictable precipitance, but for the most part, uh, the biggest predictor of someone having insomnia in the future is having it right now. And, and how common is it? Well, if you look very broadly, people tend to report having some symptoms of insomnia, you know, probably um, um, about 30% of the, of the general population. But if we drill down, to those people who actually meet the strict criteria, probably you know roughly 10% of, of the general population, you know having it as a relatively chronic problem, and of course you know that leads to uh, a lot of frustration and misery and uh, you know challenges for people functioning in, in their lives during the daytime. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely, and. It, just a, a caveat too. I know you you mentioned you know a couple of those criteria, but we've got a lot of you know pharmacists, maybe other healthcare professionals on here um, that may or may not be working the night shift. Um, you know, does that play a role into it? Or you know, of course, stress um, is probably one of the contributors. I'd love to hear some of the other you know, key risk factors and, and what, you know, leads people more into having insomnia. But uh, just to clarify on the the shift or different, you know, lifestyle things that people are doing, um, if that actually 
helped, you know, would attribute to insomnia or not? Well, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, shift work, um, you know, even when someone's not doing like a, a full night of, you know, of, of night work, just changing schedules uh, from like a, an early morning day shift to an afternoon into a late evening kind of shift can be very problematic for our circadian rhythms. You know, we're really dependent upon our biological clock to sort of orchestrate all of our physiologic processes. And one of the outcomes of that circadian rhythm is our, our sleep-wake cycle. So that rhythm optimizes when we're able to you know, achieve our sleep at nighttime, ideally. And so regularity uh, is so important in everything that we do in order to optimize that rhythm to allow optimum performance and alertness throughout the daytime into the evening, and then, you know, sleep at nighttime. And so if people can get up and have a, you know, a, a morning breakfast, have meals at regular times, having um, a last meal, you know, moderately early, those people who advocate uh, time-restricted eating, big breakfast, small or lunch, early supper, and fasting into the evening are more likely to have greater robustness in their circadian system. And, and the more robustness there is, the greater the opportunity for sleep. So we preach uh, activity and light exposure throughout the daytime, winding down in the evening with relaxing activities, you know, less exposure to bright light uh, in the few hours leading up to, to bedtime. Uh, sometimes recommending that people do things to decrease that blue end of the spectrum, um, which is more alerting to our circadian system and is more likely to be suppressing our melatonin, which we also depend upon to help us get to sleep in the evening. And so using um, reddish low cover temperature bulbs in a bedroom, uh, we think can be beneficial for some people. You know, as opposed to having screens right up in front of our faces, whether it's from a smartphone or a tablet or a laptop or sitting close to a computer screen or even even to a, a, to a television. So there are lots of routines that people can follow that should help to maximize that robustness of the circadian system and get to sleep better uh, and stay asleep better as well. However, having said all of that, you know, we face challenges uh, in our work lives and our social lives and our academic lives as well. And uh, so sometimes it's, um, we have to make some compromises along the way, but keeping as regular as possible, you know, should be beneficial for, for most people. And, and while the end of the spectrum for problem sleeping is the insomnia disorder, we 100% of us are vulnerable to variations in our sleep quality, depending upon our all of these daytime activities that I've mentioned. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And of course, uh, as I'm about to welcome baby number two, the <laughs> sleeplessness that you get with pregnancy and then being a new parent, I'm sure many can relate uh, that, you know, that brings a whole different season uh, there, but there's, you know, a lot of the things that you mentioned on like the wind down and the routine or some of the things that are really kind of emphasized and even getting, there's such a big 
you know, push on sleep training uh, infants. But, you know, there's there's a lot of benefits to them in having that schedule and routine, but certainly some, some benefits to parents and uh, that they can, um, you know, get back to being well rested and then can best manage uh, the daytime and everything. So um, you mentioned, you know, sometimes we might need a little bit of of help. And so there are some different treatments available. What are some of the most common um, treatments that you see pharmacologic and non uh, for insomnia? Well, you're you're exactly right. So in terms of evidence-based treatments, there are two very broad categories. There is one in the realm of the psychological and behavioral approaches. And usually this is put together as cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI. Uh, it's been studied for decades. There is excellent support for the benefits of this type of therapy. And um, one of the things that's especially helpful is that it has very good durability, meaning that if someone participates in cognitive behavioral therapy with a therapist, and this is going on for six or eight or 12 weeks or so, there are ongoing benefits after that. It's not as though sleep worsens again the moment that um, someone has finished with with that therapy. There are certified providers, um, easy to look up with the, for instance, the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine, uh, and they have a list of of providers um, throughout the country and and elsewhere uh, also. So that's one big picture. Uh, we always in, endorse the, the benefits of CBTI for people and want to make sure that patients are aware of that. And then, of course, the other broad category would be the different sorts of medications uh, and other substances that people may take to try to improve their sleep, to help them get to sleep and stay asleep better during the nighttime. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, of course, I'm sure many of our listeners are probably familiar uh, with some of those and and even, you know, non-pharmacists. Um, if you asked anyone, like, what, do you, what would you take um, to help you fall asleep? You might get answers like Benadryl or, you know, even like the Tylenol PM, you know, when you have like the PM, it's got some of the, that um, diphenhydramine or Benadryl ingredient uh, melatonin, um, and then certainly other, um, you know, prescription, uh, medications. So can you walk us through some of, some of those and then, uh, maybe, uh, share a bit more on if there are any newer treatments available that we need to be, uh, paying attention to? Sure. So let me um, back up and look at the big picture, which includes a lot of the things that you mentioned. And and you're so right that uh, it's really quite diverse, the different things that people will take to to try to sleep better. So I put them into four different categories, starting with the dietary supplements. So, of course, these are minimally regulated by the FDA. And when you look at things that are promoted for sleep, there are just thousands of, of, of different mm-hmm. products and they have uh, so many different ingredients. And within the dietary supplements, there, for me, there, there are two categories. One is melatonin uh, and the other is 
everything else. So melatonin kind of makes sense. You know, we, we, we make our own melatonin and it follows the circadian rhythm. And throughout the daytime, our melatonin levels are low. They gradually increase in the evening as our bedtime approaches, sort of plateaus during the night, and then it comes down uh, in, in the morning. And melatonin is really interesting in terms of how it works because melatonin is not directly sedating. Rather, in the evening, it helps facilitate sleep onset by decreasing the natural arousal that we experience in the evening. We are typically the most awake and alert in the evening than any time throughout the whole 24-hour cycle. And that's because our circadian system is promoting late afternoon, um, early evening arousal, which helps us keep on going throughout the whole daytime and into the evening. But as I said, as bedtime approaches, the circadian system is promoting the release of melatonin from our, our pineal gland. And when that melatonin is reaching the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the timekeeper of the circadian system, it helps to decrease that arousal, and that's why it's helping us fall asleep, as opposed to what you might naturally think would be it having a, a sedating effect. One in interesting piece of information to, um, to further that argument is that, you know, we are diurnal species, right? Um, we're active in the daytime and typically sleeping at nighttime, and our melatonin is low during the daytime and high during the nighttime. But there are nocturnal species, you know, various rodents and others who are sleeping in the daytime, active at nighttime. And so what happens to their melatonin rhythm? Well, nothing. It's exactly the same as ours. They are sleeping in the daytime when their melatonin is low. They're active at nighttime when their uh, melatonin is high. And again, furthering that argument that melatonin is not really sedating. It, um, it, it simply sends a signal to our circadian system. And it's almost as though there's a relay in our, in our suprachiasmatic nucleus, in the hypothalamus, that determines which way that signal goes, again, depending on the species. So if somebody takes melatonin in the evening, maybe it has a chance of enhancing they're falling asleep. Um, it's not likely to be beneficial later during the nighttime. Uh, and if somebody is going to take melatonin, a low dose is as good as a higher dose. It's actually kind of crazy what's on the market right now. You know, probably a half a milligram or a milligram or maybe three milligrams could be beneficial. But you see 10, 20, 60 milligrams you can buy. Uh, and, you know, that that's seems like it might be problematic. Um, there is a flat dose response curve for melatonin and other melatonin agonists as well. So if somebody was gonna take melatonin, we would suggest low dose and prior to bedtime, not right when the person is getting into bed, maybe an hour or two earlier would, would make sense and maybe enhance their ability to, to fall asleep a little bit earlier. But also within that category of the dietary supplements is a very long list of other things that are, you know, much less proven. Um, things like um, chamomile, valerian, uh, magnesium is often added into these, mm -hmm. skullcap and hops and many, many others. 
um, less, much less uh, evidence to support the use of those. So, so that's the, the first category of the dietary supplements. Then the next category would be those over-the-counter products that are actually sanctioned, approved by the FDA for particular indications. And in terms of sleep aids, it's really just two products, uh, or at least two chemicals. Um, there's the diphenhydramine and there's doxalamine. Uh, all of those um, OTC sleep aid products um, that are approved by the FDA are one of those. And, you know, sometimes combined with, with analgesics for those PM products. Mm -hmm. So the diphenhydramine and doxalamine are pretty similar. Um, they can be beneficial. You know, they're antihistamines. So we know that histamine itself is a potent wake-promoting neurotransmitter. So, you know, an antihistamine can have a sedating effect. Um, some of the challenges with these OTC antihistamines are they tend to be relatively long-acting, and so people can have some grogginess the following morning. And then the other concern are the anticholinergic effects with both of those. Um, might not be much of a problem for a healthy young person, but anticholinergic um, properties can be problematic for older individuals. Also, people who are taking other medications that have anticholinergic properties can be additive and, and lead to difficulties with them. And, you know, some of the simple things may be, you know, blurred vision and dry mouth and constipation, but people can also experience significant urinary hesitancy. And, you know, particularly among older individuals, and, and I've seen many examples, there can be memory difficulty and, uh, you know, confusion and even, you know, um, full-blown delirium, you know, just from the anticholinergic effects of, of these medications, you know, perhaps along with other anticholinergic medications. So we're much less likely to recommend um, these over-the-counter antihistamines, you know, for, for older individuals. Mm -hmm. The other thing that surprises me about them um, sometimes is that people can develop tolerance to the sedating effect. And especially with young individuals, you know, I see people, you know, taking very surprising doses. So, you know, like with diphenhydramine, someone, you know, might take 25 or 50 milligrams because, you know, that's, that's on label. But people may take uh, considerably more. And years ago, uh, I thought that when I heard people saying that they were taking 200 milligrams a oh, night, wow. that seemed like a lot. And uh, then it was 400 and 500. And I've actually had one patient come in for evaluations who said that she was taking um, 600 milligrams. Oh my goodness. Very startling uh, amount. And how but, are they waking up in the morning? And now we've seen some of these things on TikTok of Benadryl overdoses in adolescents. It's so frightening. Uh, There's so much yes. misinformation. So, you know, there's a role for these over-the-counter antihistamines, uh, but there are cautions that should be advised as well. So the third category then would be the prescription required medications that are not indicated by the FDA, uh, but are used anyway because they may have sedating effects and um, you know, for whatever reason uh, seem appealing to to prescribers to use them. Um, there are several different 
antidepressants that fall into that category and old timers would remember um, amitriptyline in particular uh, being used very commonly for sleep. Um, yes, sedating, but very long acting uh, and you know a lot of other potential adverse effects going along with it. Um, various doses of doxepin as well. Um, mirtazapine, um, also rather long acting, but sedating and um, you know maybe beneficial for some people. But the number one in this category, it won't surprise you or the listeners probably, is trazodone. Mm -hmm. uh, trazodone is not approved for treating insomnia by the FDA. It's an antidepressant, uh, but it is in fact uh, the medication that is most commonly prescribed uh, for insomnia, you know, more than the other medications that are actually uh, approved for, for treating insomnia. Aside from antidepressants, um, there are some antipsychotics that sometimes are, are used to treat insomnia. Now, it's one thing if there is somebody with a psychotic illness and you need to choose an antipsychotic and choosing a sedating one to help with their sleep might make sense. But there's been a trend in actually you know, probably more than a decade for prescriptions for um, low-dose quetiapine, 25 milligrams, maybe a little bit more. Uh, to to treat insomnia, it is somewhat sedating, but you know the risk benefit ratio for an antipsychotic, you know, is very different for a population of psychiatric patients who may need help with their sleep versus um, the general population and people who have no comorbid psychiatric disorders. So we um, discourage the use of, of antipsychotics to treat sleep, uh, you know, unless there's some um, strong argument to to include that. Um, also, other off-label usage, um, antihypertensive. So clonidine sometimes is used to treat insomnia, um, often um, among, among children. Some um, anticonvulsant mood stabilizer medications like gabapentin sometimes is used. And I'm not advocating the use of any of these, but just you know, remarking on prescribing trends. Mm -hmm. And then, um, the, so the final category would be those medications that are in fact approved by the FDA for treating insomnia, medications uh, that have been fully tested. Oh, I want to jump in insomnia. on one more that might be using the benzodiazepines. I've certainly seen some of those. Oh, you're exactly right. So there are some benzodiazepines that are approved for treating insomnia, and then there are other benzodiazepines that haven't been evaluated mm -hmm. uh, and, and therefore are not approved. So thank you for adding that. So um, those would include things like alprazolam and lorazepam, uh, clonazepam as well, very popularly. E even some diazepam would fall in that category, some of the other benzodiazepines as well. So absolutely, those are used uh, pretty commonly too. So then with those that are approved, there are four different pharmacodynamic classes now available. So we really have a, a much enhanced pharmacopoeia for treating insomnia with medications that are you know, fully investigated for efficacy and safety. So we, we've mentioned benzodiazepines. So that would be the, the first category. Uh, there are actually five and they're all pretty old uh, that re that remain approved for treating insomnia. The first one was a 
flurazepam back in 1970. And after that, um, there was um, quazepam, estazolam, temazepam, still commonly prescribed triazolam, not so much now, but very popular at one point. So those are all still around and available, uh, not prescribed so often because we have um, you know, better alternatives at this point. One of the main problems with those benzodiazepines is that they tend to be very long acting. Now, triazolam is pretty short, that's the exception, but the half-life of the other benzodiazepines, you know, in, it, particularly with the active metabolites, sometimes can be several days. And so that's certainly worrisome when we consider the potential um, impact that the medications may have on, on people the following day. So we're not likely to use those older benzodiazepines so much. So then the related would be the newer category of what gets called um, the non-benzodiazepine, benzodiazepine receptor agonist hypnotics, sometimes um, described as positive allosteric modulators at the GABA-A receptor complex. Now, all of these have similar mechanism of action. We, we, we know that um, the GABA receptor is the most widespread in, inhibitory system. Uh, there are several different types of of receptors, but GABA itself um, is the most widespread neurotransmitter uh, within the, the CNS. And the way these medications work is they work in an, an allosteric site, um, not where GABA uh, itself attaches, but elsewhere on the GABA-A receptor complex. And when a benzodiazepine or a related medication um, is at its recognition site and GABA comes along, it allows negative chloride ions to enter the cell, um, decreasing the likelihood of an action potential and therefore having an overall uh, inhibitory effect. You know, very broadly, benzodiazepines and, and related medications can um, enhance sleep, so they can be sedating, they can be anxiolytics and muscle relaxants and anticonvulsants as well, you know, all sharing that in inhibitory um, activity. So the newer generation of these non-benzodiazepine hypnotic things like zolpidem and zaloplon and in the U.S. Um, S-zopaclone elsewhere in the world, there is zopaclone um, itself. So these work in a similar fashion. For the most part, they have shorter half-lives. They're a little bit more selective for the GABA-A re receptors that they interact with. And so these are really a, a safer version compared to the benzodiazepines. Uh, that shorter half-life certainly is a, is a very uh, important um, benefit for them. And um, so that's the, the, the first broad category of the FDA-approved one, benzodiazepine receptor um, agonists. The second category has just one medication, and that is a melatonin receptor agonist. And that's the medication Remelteon. And you know, thinking back to what melatonin itself does, the Remelteon can be beneficial for sleep onset insomnia. And um, so the indication uh, from the FDA is just for difficulty falling asleep. Then the third category is um, interestingly sort of a, an older antidepressant 
functioning as an antihistamine, and that is ultra low dose doxepin. So for treating depression, the prescribing guidelines for doxepin go up to 300 milligrams a day, and the approved doses for low dose doxepin for treating insomnia are three and six milligrams. So it's a very tiny dose compared to the antidepressant doses. But what happens is at these super low doses, doxepin has, has very high selectivity for the histamine receptor. And so it's a very pure antihistamine at these low doses, you know, in, in the single digits. So there are the products, the pills that are um, um, three and six milligrams. Uh, an alternative is using a liquid version, you know, still in those very low doses. And so by using um, the doxepin at those low doses, it's possible to avoid the other adverse effects that higher dose doxepin might have, but also avoid the anticholinergic effects that um, those over-the-counter, the diphenhydramine and the doxalamine might have. This low-dose doxepin is approved by the FDA for treating sleep maintenance difficulty. So not difficulty falling asleep, but rather difficulty remaining asleep. And then finally, in more recent years, there's this fourth category of orexin receptor antagonists. So the orexin system is really interesting and it, and it wasn't even described until 1998. And it was really thought to um, have a kind of an, an orchestrating function of synchronizing the activities of, of different neurotransmitter systems. So we know that there are uh, orexin um, neurons in the hypothalamus, which project up to the um, cerebrum to promote alertness and wakefulness, but also down into the brainstem to um, stimulate and organize the activity of a lot of other wake-promoting neurotransmitters like um, acetylcholine and dopamine and norepinephrine and serotonin, and, and within the hypothalamus itself, histamine. And so during the daytime when we're awake, the orexin system is promoting um, the, the wakefulness and it shuts off during the nighttime. And as I say, it's, it really orchestrates and stabilizes our wakefulness and in its absence, um, our sleep as well. So very early on, it was discovered that people with narcolepsy who are too sleepy during the daytime mm -hmm. have low activity of the orexin system. And because of that, researchers thought, well, what about these people with insomnia who are sort of hyper aroused during the nighttime? What if we develop a medication that's an antagonist that can decrease the activity of the orexin system? And so pretty quickly within a few hours, few, pretty quickly within a few years of that discovery, medications were being tested. And then finally, um, we have three different products on the market that are dual orexin receptor antagonists. There are actually two similar orexin neuropeptides and two similar 
receptor types. And so the medications available now are antagonists for the, the, the two different types of receptors. And so these have been well studied for both their safety and their efficacy. The first one that became available was um, Suvorexant, and then the second one was Lemborexant, and more recently, Deridorexant. And so these medications have been approved by the FDA for the treatment of insomnia, characterized by difficulty with sleep onset and or sleep maintenance difficulty. So they've been tested in um, various populations of individuals having insomnia disorder and uh, have demonstrated very clear benefits for sleep onset and for sleep maintenance uh, and having um, very positive um, safety profiles. In the label, one of the concerns is potential for residual sleepiness the following morning. Uh, and so people should be, be aware of that possibility. But for the most part, uh, individuals uh, tend to sleep better and um, feel more alert and active and uh, productive um, during the daytime. So this has been a, a very welcome advance. Uh, it's just great to have so many options available, you know, in, including, you know, these, these more um, very targeted actions. If you think about the comparison with the benzodiazepine, there are very global effects in the CNS, whereas with these new dualorexin receptor antagonists, it's zeroing in on this particular, you know, activity emanating from, from the hypothalamus. So it's been a very nice uh, um, progression of the development of, of these medications for, for treating insomnia disorder. So we have a, a lot of choices, which is a great thing for a clinician like me. Mm, fascinating. Well, David, I certainly feel like I just had a, a good deep dive or at least a great overview CE uh, version of what's the latest in the different sleep uh, pharmacological treatments. So I know that, that this will certainly be a value to any of our listeners, whether they're um, pharmacists or maybe med students or just even you know practitioners that might need a refresher on what's uh, happening with all of your great expertise and um, serving on so many different uh, committees and, and different uh, leader organizations related to sleep. So to maybe close out uh, our, our time together, maybe you can give us some uh, tips on what uh, everyone can do to help improve their sleep. Oh, um, decreased stress in their lives. Uh, that's a good place to start. Um, easier, easier said than done. You know, I'll get back to what we talked about in the beginning, and that is enhancing daytime activity, enhancing exposure to light during the daytime, and then minimizing that light as the evening progresses, um, shift more towards cooler, well, shift towards lower color temperature uh, lighting, and um, you know, give yourself an, an opportunity to uh, to to uh, have plenty of time for sleep. Actually, um, I'll mention this point. You know, people ask me, "Oh, should I try taking some melatonin to help me get to sleep earlier?" And and my answer is, try using your own melatonin. You know, don't do things that are suppressing your melatonin, especially with lots of bright lights. You know, right up until bedtime is approaching. Mm -hmm, certainly. 
Well, this was really fascinating, and I um, am glad to get up to date on some of the the latest uh, uses and uh, love your passion for teaching. And it was such a pleasure to have you as a guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Thanks so much, Hillary. This has really been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk to Your Pharmacist, produced by the Pharmacy Advisory Group. If you liked this episode, let us know by subscribing to the podcast, rating, and reviewing it. Share it with friends. And if you want to be a guest or know a pharmacist leader who has a great story to tell, connect with me, Hillary Blackburn, on LinkedIn and check out our Facebook page, Pharmacy Advisory Group, for updates on new podcasts. Thanks for listening.